Hello and welcome into this edition of the Golf Channel Podcast with Rex and Lav. So much to get to this week. It's the start of the FedEx Cup playoffs. Justin Thomas, Bryson DeChambeau make their case for Ryder Cup inclusion. Rex is in Memphis and hopefully following my exact itinerary for barbecue glory. But first, PJ Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan just wrapped up a scrum with reporters about 16 hours after his first player meeting since taking a leave of absence in June because of a health issue, and a day after a key PJ Tour executive resigned, effective immediately. Rex, we are doing this one sans Wi-Fi because things in Memphis are getting a little bit wacky. Is anything been happening in golf over the past day? It's like we've taken a step back. Like, it, it, is Memphis just some sort of portal that we go back in time and technology where – we go from a visual medium for some to to we're back to just being an audio medium. Is that that, that is that what's happening here? Black hole. Anyone yeah. who anyone who has watched us on YouTube over the past year is going to be very disappointed by this episode on August 9th. But this is the best we can do. Trying to bring it to you with the less the least amount of ambient noise. Uh, you are in the middle of a, a hailstorm of some sort. Hailstorms, um, tornadoes, end of the end of Earth stuff. Yeah, it, it's not pretty here. And we're not even referring to like the state of the PJ Tour. That's literally the weather right now in Memphis. We'll get to uh, your barbecue itinerary shortly. Uh, but you did speak with uh, Commissioner Jay Monahan, first time we've seen or heard from him uh, in more than a month. What was your big takeaway? Uh, there was a couple takeaways. He spoke with uh, kind of a roundtable of reporters for about an hour. Uh, he seemed healthy. He seemed energized. Uh, I think that was kind of the, the purpose of this. That was the purpose of last night's player meeting here in Memphis was the idea of showing that he's back in charge, showing that he's in control and can sort of steer the ship from here on out. I will say, and he was asked kind of, uh, there was a couple things that stood out. Probably the first one was he was asked point blank about any more details, just the idea of why he had to take that medical leave. And he didn't go into a lot of detail. He said it was anxiety related, and that led to some, you know, some medical issues that he had to deal with. He said that while he was gone, it was kind of up to his medical team and his family when he would return. And, and that's fascinating to me as I'm writing a column right now. And the idea being that anyone who has met Jay Monahan, this is not some sort of great insight that I bring. Anyone who's met him will tell you that this is a type A personality. This is a guy who likes to play 3D chess. This is a guy who wants to not look at the crisis today, but look at the crisis two days from now or a week from now or a year from now. And the idea that he had to sit on the sideline during arguably the game's most you know, trying time when the framework agreement had just been announced. There was tons of pushback from players. There was tons of pushback from the public, and there was nothing he could do. I can only imagine how difficult that was. Now, there weren't any details as far as how the framework agreement is moving along towards the definitive agreement, which is where uh, the tour hopes they end up, at least by the end of this year. But there were some, some telling ideas in there. I guess the one that stood out, and this was based on what some players told us last night after they left the meeting was it's not written in stone that this agreement will end up coming to fruition. It's right. not written in stone that whatever new co or PGA tour enterprises, which is what they really want us to call it now will be some sort of conglomerate of the PGA tour, PIF, live golf, the DP world tour. That being said, there will be something moving forward beyond what the PGA tour is right now. I guess I find that interesting that, even if this deal falls through with Pip, that there will be a deal 
of some sort, whether if that's with some sort of venture capital firm. Wow, you hear that? It is crazy here, man. Uh, some sort of venture capital firm or something going forward. The tour as we know it today will not be the same at this point next year. Just to go back to Monahan and the reason for him stepping away, let's say, well, I guess we'll call it anxiety issues. So, so you're saying that the stress of the deal, the secret deal, the deal that, that pissed off every PGA Tour member uh, led to these issues, led to him being sidelined. How much confidence do you get a sense from the players that in the next five months he's going to be healthy enough to carry out what is arguably the most significant, momentous decision that a PGA Tour executive's ever had to make? Uh, I think that's part of what the players needed to hear. I think the other part of what the players needed to hear was there is a severe lack of trust when it comes to the commissioner because of how this deal went down. And I think that's probably his, his primary goal, or at least short term, is to try to rebuild some version of that trust because he said it today when he was speaking with the media, without the complete buy-in of at least the policy board. And look, he's never going to get the buy-in of all the players going forward, but he has to have that the 10 members of the policy board to buy into whatever the definitive agreement is going to be without that happening, they're not going to move forward. So that has to be his primary goal. And look, that's going to be exhausting to go back to your original question. He did say that whatever the anxiety was, whatever the medical ramifications were that sort of hit him, it was on that day. It was on June 6th when he had to stand in front of the world next to the governor of the PIF on CNBC and announced this after months, a year, a year and a half, really, of being on the exact other side. And it's a really good question because the next few months aren't going to be any easier. What did you make, Rex, of the player meeting, the first one since uh, Monaghan returned from a leave of absence, based on your reporting, based on others reporting, only about 25 players of the 70-man field at the FedEx St. Jude Championship showed up at TPC Southwind for this meeting. It sounded like it took an hour and a half or so. Were you surprised that so few players showed up? What was the general tone of the meeting? And are we getting any closer now, two months on, to what this could possibly look like? Because listening to Sky Shepherd today in Memphis, uh, it sounds like there's still so many unknowns and, and, and players are having a hard time even – even verbalizing what this competitive future could look like? I don't think we're any closer now than we probably were two months ago when this was announced. And that's not saying that there's not plenty of work going on behind the scenes. I'm sure Tyler Dennis, who's the executive vice president, who's kind of spearheading the negotiations with the PIF, he's in these meetings. I mean, Jay talked about the idea that the, the team was just up in New York on Sunday and Monday going through another round of talks and they'll be back up in New York next week going through even more talks and it's an ongoing process. They're not closed. I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. There's, there are so many things, so many hurdles that need to get cleared before we ever get to any type of definitive agreement. That's going to be the difficult part. Going back to the meeting, uh, 25 players seemed low for me. We asked the commissioner kind of point blank and he actually said he expected uh, fewer than what showed up, which is telling to me that it, that that he doesn't have that much faith in his players. Look, I'll give the players the benefit of the doubt. I actually had dinner with a player last night who did go to the meeting. And he, his point to me was there was really no use in being there because, as we just said, there aren't any answers. Like, it was good to see Jay. I think most players wanted to reach out 
for no other reason than he hasn't been around since he took the medical leave. And they wanted to welcome him back and tell him that on some level that they did miss him and that the tour does need him. And even though there's anger and vitriol and he's got to re reestablish that trust that I just talked about, that there is empathy. Like these players are not animals. They understand that he was going through something and needed that time off. But the fact it was only about 25 players out of a 70-man field, the fact that Rory and Patrick Cantlay weren't among those 25 players, these are two guys that are on the policy board, will be involved in this final decision, that is telling. I didn't, I didn't expect those guys to, to show up. They've been on more conference calls. They've been in more meetings. They've had more conversations with, with Jay Monahan. This felt like a, this felt like an opportunity for the rest of the membership, I guess, to voice to voice their concerns uh, and hear it directly from Monahan, as opposed to hearing it secondhand from from a Cantley or a Macro. I wasn't surprised by by their no show. I saw some people comparing it to James Hahn, right, who didn't show up at at TPG Sawgrass Players Championship for the players only meeting after he uh, spouted off on Twitter. I didn't get that same sense at all. I thought it was a completely different dynamic. I think if you go back for no other reason, you're right. I mean, clearly Cantlay and Rory have been involved in these meetings. They probably know more than the rest of us, and there was no reason for them to intend, uh, at least as far as the itinerary goes. I would argue for no other reason than just to show some sort of solidarity when it came to James first since he left on his medical leave, since he sort of came under fire because of the framework agreement, that, at least in my mind, would have suggested that they could have been there for him. I don't know, Rex. It just seems like the more we get into this now, two months on, five months until the deadline, of course, they could extend the deadline if they so choose uh, between those two sides. It just feels like this deal is not going to happen. It feels like there's so many hurdles. It feels like players are still hurt. It feels like uh, lawmakers don't want to see this happen. I know they're supposed to be negotiating in good faith. PJ Tour and the Saudi Investment Fund are supposed to be negotiating in good faith. It just feels like they're just biding their time until Tiger Rory and company can get venture capitalists in here, private equity firms can get in here, and they can kind of match what the PIF was offering the tour in terms of an investment a sustainable business model and going forward. Are you getting, that's just, that's just a hunch I have. That's, that's not based on any reporting. That's just, it's just, it's just a feeling. There's, there's been so many caveats with how they're couching this framework agreement. It just seemed like the framework agreement was literally just to end the lawsuits between the two warring sides. And Hey, if we can make a deal great over these next five months, if not, we seem content going our separate ways with, you know, Yasser Al-Ramayan's baby being live and wanting to continue that for the next couple of years. Do you get that sense at all, Rex, or is that just a hunch of mine? Uh, you're really good at this, so I'm going to get let you uh, – go ahead and give, give me a percentage, just so we can put this on the record, because you seem to enjoy putting percentages on things that you just have a hunch over. Percent, percentage percent that happens? actually works out. Yeah. I'm going to go with 20%. A twenty percent chance. All of your journalistic integrity here. Uh, no, it's just a hunch. Yeah, that seems low. This is just. Uh, this is just. And, and, this is just a you, conversation. You just. You're just basing this on on whatever's in your gut at the moment, based on where you were in Banff last week. I can only imagine what's in your gut at the moment. Uh, 
That seems re reckless journalistically, so I'm not going to go ahead and uh, dignify that with an answer. To be fair, I think journalistically, I would just put it at 50-50 because this goes back to the idea that everyone involved, Jay Monahan, the Piff, Livgoff, anyone else involved in this, I have to believe that they're playing 3D chess, that they see this better than we do, and that in their mind that there is an alternate universe where the only thing this deal set out to accomplish was to get rid of the litigation because neither side wanted to continue the litigation. Uh, the PGA Tour was highly motivated to stop hemorrhaging money into the legal fees. And PIF specifically did not want to get tangled up in the U.S. courts any, any more than they already were because of the billions of dollars they have invested in other companies in the United States. This had, this had less to do with the, the specific lawsuit between the Tour, PIF, and Livgoff than it had to do with how that lawsuit could impact all of their other investments. So they were highly motivated to get this to an end. So, yes, I agree with you. The idea that you could sit and think of the, the metaverse, sorry, it's a terrible reference, but in this metaverse, that the only thing this set out to accomplish in a weird and twisted way is to get rid of that lawsuit, get rid of all the legal entanglement. And then once you kind of wade through all the weeds and you check all the, the I's and you got all the T's, the idea is that we're just going to be done with this. And then we can move on and go our separate ways. I, I think that's a reality we should consider the reality is that in good faith that the two sides do work and to try to come up with some sort of plan that creates new co or pga tour entertainment that they do work to come up with some way that they can all work together I, i'm not sure i could put a number on how that plays out either way because again i have to believe that everyone who's involved in this sees the bigger picture that the rest of us do not thankfully your internet connection was so shoddy that uh, i didn't fully hear you chastising me uh but I, I have always scoffed at the notion that Jay Monahan's job is on tenuous footing right now because of this secretive deal. Why would you not wait to see how this pans out before you get rid of the guy who is negotiating with the Saudis and the DP World Tour to come to some sort of definitive agreement? He could look in five months' time like a savior for the PGA Tour and has them a better, in a better financial position than they have ever been. And so the, the rush to judgment on Jay Monahan, I have not understood it. Uh, and at least it appears at this point that he will be able to see the job through. All right, Rex, uh, let's. No, I, I agree with you. And just to sort of tag that in the idea. And I, I was writing this in a column today and it's come to me. I don't know that there's another commissioner in any sport. Forget about just golf, who has faced the challenges that Jay Monahan has faced. And he took over in 2017. So in 2020, the world comes to a complete standstill because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And not only does the tour weather that, but they, they set the standard. They were out front. The tour came back first of all the major sports and they showed everyone else that it could be done and how to do it. You have to give them credit for that. No sport, no commissioner has ever faced the quote unquote irrational threat that is lived off in the pit. And he's put himself, he has been put in a position, I would call it an almost impossible position. To, you have to choose between two evils, and both of them are really, really bad. And so, and the third part of that, I would argue, is that this kind of gets glossed over. During his tenure, tenure, Tiger Woods stopped playing golf. Since the start of the pandemic, Tiger Woods has played exactly 12 official tour events. It's not that he's playing badly. It's not that his skills, is, his skills have fallen off. He has simply stopped playing golf. So all of those things combined with the idea that you took away the, the engine that moved golf, I mean, those are three really big challenges. 
they're enormous challenges. I think you're exactly right. I think Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL, has his has his own issues, you know, battling through COVID as well, but also player safety, uh, owners who are who are mixed up in in illegal activity. Those are different sort of challenges. But but you're exactly right in what Jay Monahan has faced and seemingly has the PGA Tour now on the on the brink of what could be a momentous decision. I mean, you could go either way. Live Golf could uh, become the the main player in men's professional golf, it seems unlikely at this point, or the PGA Tour uh, could be could be set up here uh, incredibly well for the next decade or two and squash its main threat, uh, retain most, if not all, of the best players in the world and ensure that it is, uh, to use his words, uh, kind of the, the legacy tour, the competitive-driven tour uh, of today's best players. I think it, I, we'll just know more by the end of the year. When we do the year-end podcast, uh, I don't think we'll be – kind of typecasting Jay Monahan in the way that some of the players had initially with the shock of this decision. I understand the raw emotions. I understand the feelings. I understand uh, kind of the, the resentment they may have felt by being left out. But if, if he could put the PGA tour in a better position financially, if he could put the players and the best players in the world uh, on a stronger footing, economically, financially uh, for years to come, well, I think their tune uh, will certainly be different. All right, Russ, that's 18 minutes of non-competitive golf talk. Let's start our conversation about the FedEx Cup playoffs. This week is the FedEx St. Jude Championship, TPC Southwind in Memphis, first stop of the FedEx Cup playoffs. But before we get to the, 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 the players in the field, before we get to Rory and Scotty, who are finally trying new putters, let's focus on the player who is not there for the first time in his career, Justin Thomas came up one shot short, nine FedEx Cup points short. We all saw the chip that somehow failed to drop on the 72nd hole at the Wyndham Championship, keeping him the 71st spot in the FedEx Cup standings and the first man out. JT now on the sidelines uh, with the Ryder Cup qualification ending in two weeks' time and U.S. Captain Zach Johnson making his picks three weeks, a uh, couple of days after the tour championship. What does JT do? Does he go play in Europe? Does he go send love messages to Zach Johnson? Does he uh, tell Jordan Spieth uh, to start getting in the captain's ear as well? Has he done enough? Would you, do you think you, do you think JT will be on that squad in Rome? My God, you talk too much. Do you realize that you just talked for almost two minutes nonstop? Uh, I talked for one minute. I have the timer set up. That was called a transition, and needed I, to set that up for our next. God, segment. take a breath. Just take, just take a knee right now. Just do me a favor. I, I did the thing on Sunday, and and I'm kind of bummed that so much has transpired over the last two days that completely changed the narrative and where we're going to go with this podcast. Because uh, like a lot of people, I was watching JT's finish on Sunday, uniquely interested because I wanted to see how this played out, and being the prisoner of the moment that I could be sometimes in that moment, had you called me and said, let's do the podcast. I would have started with absolutely 100% JT has to be on that team because of what he just showed me. Like forget about how he fits into the team and we can talk about the partnership dynamic and the team room dynamic. And he's been there before he's experienced. We can, we can go at length about that. I'm basing it entirely on what he did that last week. The idea that he knew his back was against the wall and on Sunday, he, he delivers, and you're right. He came up five points short, and, but you want a player in that situation 
who doesn't shy away for the moment. And not only did he deliver, but he was staring at the leaderboard the whole time. I think that's so fascinating to me that not only are you aware of the pressure, but you want to eat it all. You just want to consume every single last ounce of it. Like the fact that cameras were on him when he glanced up at the leaderboard, when he was finished on the 72nd hole and he saw that, oh no, 71, like I missed it by that much. That had to be gutting, but I keep going back to the idea that that's the kind of player you want on your team. Now, if you ask me this same thing three weeks from now, my opinion is probably going to change dramatically. But being the prisoner of the moment that I could be, yes, 100% you should be on that team. Uh, I think he should be on the team as well. I think experience counts for a lot, particularly when you're heading into a hostile environment and a scenario in which Americans uh, have not won over the past 30 years. You want JT, when you get him in partner play, uh, he doesn't need to be perfect. And you put him in a spot where he's comfortable, whether it's with Ricky, whether it's with Jordan uh, and partner play. Uh, I think he can certainly succeed. Y- you mentioned the JT leaderboard watching on Sunday at the Wyndham. If you're, if you're focusing primarily on that, then you actually don't feel good about how he played that last hour then, do you? Like making bogey on 16, absolutely needing to put it in the fairway on 18 to give himself a chance. Instead pulls it into the trees. Actually, it's a miraculous recovery shot just to give himself a chance to save pars. That probably doesn't make you feel all that good. I still feel relatively confident that JT will be on that squad, but Rex, I think it's really going to come down to these next couple of weeks. Like you could pencil JT in into that 12th spot right now. Uh, Obviously Ricky right now is 13th in standing. JT is 14th in the standings. I would pick those two guys over both Keegan Bradley, who's 10th as well as Sam Burns, who is 12th, but look, if Sam Burns tears it up in the playoffs, if a Tony Finau tears it up in the playoffs, like you're probably going to put those guys on the team and bump out JT. To me, he's the last man in, but he also very easily, depending on what happens in this postseason, could be the first man out. No, uh, and to go back to your point, no. He, he did, if you look at the way he performed, he's still not playing well. I mean, that's obvious. The drive on 18 on Sunday being the primary example of that. When you had to hit a drive, when you had to give yourself an opportunity to get a birdie, the best you could do was have a chance to try to chip in. No, the, the game, the swing, still not there. I don't think I'm, anyone would dance around that idea. I just love the idea of how he was grinding until the very end. There was an eagle putt that got him in, and, of course, he follows that with a bogey, and he's still inside where he's right there on the bubble. I just love the idea of a player that's willing to embrace the pressure and that, that situation when everything that's on the line, when we all know what this means to him and he's not shying away from it. Absolutely not. The game's not there. And to your point, you're right. There could so much could happen over the next three weeks that could make him an absolute afterthought. And just the idea. But how that do you not, how do you not put your heart and soul on that team? Like he's the heart and soul of that U S team. How do you, how do you leave him on the bench? Well, the problem right now is everyone ahead of them has three weeks or more or less a couple of weeks to prove that they deserve it more than he does at this point in time. And you're also not you're also got to you know toy with the idea that there could be a Billy Horschel who's not even on our radar right now. You mentioned Tony Finau being the primary example. He goes on one of those kind of playoff runs. Someone's going to do something that's going to make it harder for Zach Johnson to pick JT than it seems right now. In the moment right now. I'm with you. Like he's a team guy. He's an easy, he's an easy guy to pair with either Ricky Fowler or Jordan Spieth. You imagine both those guys are going to be on the team. He's experienced. He's a veteran. You need him when you go overseas, trying to win it for the first time in decades overseas, all of the things that go into it. But three weeks from now, we don't know what we don't know. 
What about a guy, Rex, who does not play on the PGA Tour, not very high up in the U.S. team standings, but he did just shoot 58 at the Greenbrier, had a great PGA championship, was in the mix as well uh, in the other summer major championships, have been playing great on live for a couple of months. Now, that is Bryson DeChambeau. Of course, Bryson played the 2018 Ryder Cup, the last uh, cup competition uh, that was overseas. He was also at the Ryder Cup at Whistling Straits. What do you think? Bryson DeChambeau, why not? Make the case for why or why not Bryson on that U.S. Ryder Cup team. I mean, the case of why not is much easier than the case for. He has been playing well in the 58 to 58. I would never discount that. I, I thought it was funny watching how things on X, a.k.a. Twitter, sort of evolved over the weekend, <laughs> kind of comparing, well, it's, you know, it's a 54-hole event. It doesn't matter. If you shoot 58, he still played some really, really good golf. And he seems to have a confidence now with a driver that hadn't been there in a while. It's the self-correcting always... driver, Rex. That's something uh, we need. I didn't realize those were on the market. I'm certainly going to, to, to Google that as soon as we're done here to see if, if I can get my hands on a self-correcting driver because Lord knows I've never had one of those. And so I guess the argument would be, yes, he's playing well right now. And you would look at his past record, and, and certainly that, that's, that's part of it. In his particular case, and this is this is a this is a non-factor of a number, but you do have to throw it out there. He's 50th on the points list right now, and that's not fair because he hasn't been earning points towards this. And but who do you have to pass over? Who's who's 49 through six that you're going to blow past to get to Bryson DeChambeau on what would essentially be a hunch, because it's not as though he showed you a whole lot when he did play in sanctioned events, and I'm talking about the majors, which was the only way he could play. It's not as though he didn't do what Brooks did. Brooks showed up when he had to and delivered, and he'll be on the team and for all the right reasons. He didn't do that. Bryson didn't do that. So it's a really hard argument to make for. It's a much easier argument to make against. I mean, you haven't even gotten into the politics, which if you're looking at a case against Bryson Neshevo, yeah. it, it comes down to, to politics. He sued the PGA Tour. There's a lot of hurt feelings about how that went down. Uh, even if he is the uh, calmer, gentler, uh, friendlier Bryson, uh, he still is a polarizing figure in the sport. Uh, it will not be easy to kind of integrate into that team. I mean, the case, the case four is he's been playing terrific golf all summer. T4, the PGA Championship, top 20 as well at the U.S. Open. You see what he's done on live. Uh, won a tournament, and then uh, came agonizingly close to Taylor Gooch in another one. When you look at Data Golf, which is a good job of kind of weeding through or, or getting or kind of overlooking the tour affiliation, like he'd be second or third among the Americans who have not already qualified for the American team. Like he's playing great golf as of now, but as we know, there are larger implications as it pertains to the U.S. Ryder Cup team. Unfortunately, him moving to live. Uh, has basically doused those chances. How about this week, Rex? You had an opportunity to talk to both Scotty and Roy McIlroy before the, the uh, skies opened up at TPC Southwind. John Rahm spoke on Tuesday, expressed the need for porta-potties. Uh, and as someone uh, with a very small bladder, uh, that was welcome news to hear from me as well. What was your kind of biggest takeaway from hearing from the top three players in the FedEx Cup standings? Uh, that was fun. The, the questions were geared towards, like, if you went to the player meeting last night with the commissioner, what would be the one thing you would press him for? And, of course, the journalist who asked this was thinking big picture. He was looking from 30,000 feet. Like, give us an idea of what you want the definitive agreement to look like or how you imagine this two sides 
would come together. And I do think it's more crappers, please. More, more crappers. crappers. Yes. And then it was, and Brian Harmon was asked the same question and he thought about it and he, his answer was ice bass. And so you get an idea of how that man, they're really insular. Like it, they, they do their jobs really, really well. They're, they're, the top 1% of the top 1%, like you have to appreciate that. But when it comes to being a tour player, the things you actually think about, like they, their focus is they got the blinders on 100%. But haven't they, haven't they come to understand either that they don't, that they don't know how the business works. They don't want to know how the business works. They're not going to get distracted by the minutia of how the business works. They're not going to have hurt feelings by players who defect or want to come back, whatever the case may be. They're focused on what can allow them to play the best golf for John Rom, Maybe he's made a number of bogeys this year because he's had to hold in uh, some of his pee for Brian Harmon. He got the, he got the ice baths and the treatment from the RNA uh, after before, before and after his tournament rounds, of the open championship and ended up winning his first major championship by six shots. I actually like that approach. Why would you, why would you focus on getting more money or other pathways for, for players? That doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean anything to you. These guys are, have have more millions that they know what to spend with, but little incremental improvements to player dining, to the fitness trailer, to apparently the uh, the, the number of porta potties on the golf course that could actually make a difference. Why not focus your energies on that? Uh, I understand it. There's a reason why Tiger Woods had never played a role in, in official leadership. He never served on the policy board in his career. He never served on the player advisory council. Same could be said for Phil Mickelson. Like, look, you have to be very, very selfish to play this game at this level. I, I've come to understand that a long time ago, and it's a level of selfishness that I actually appreciate because I don't know that I could go through life thinking only about me all the time. And, and so I think there is something to be said for that. I'll turn the question back on you, though. There are plenty of players, JT probably being the primary one, who was involved in whatever this process has become. Let's call it, man, do we have to keep changing names? It was elevated events, and then it was designated events, and now it's signature events. Signature. I, I just... I just like for them to land on, I think, I think, like, please stop. Please stop moving the bar on this one. So whatever it is we've come up with, it may look good if you're a top player right now. Last year, sitting in that room in Delaware, when you were rubbing shoulders with the game's best players and you were among them and you were thinking only of yourself, it was really easy to say, yeah, let's do 70-man fields and, and make this really, really difficult for players to play their way in. Now as a player on the outside looking in, Adam Scott being another primary example, my guess is, they're second-guessing their, their decisions. So I get why you need to be insular. I get why you would rather not pay attention to the business that surrounds you. But you're doing that to your own risks. You're doing that based on the idea that, yes, I'll be a top 50 player for the, from now until the end of eternity. And that's not, that's not something you should probably bank on. You probably need to think a little bit more wider than that and think about what's best for not just you, but for everyone on the PGA Tour. I mean, when it comes to the top 70 – the PJ Tour has long maintained that it is the ultimate meritocracy. And with these signature events now being limited fields, only a handful of them going to have cuts, it seems like a handout for the top guys. It seems as a, as a way for the top guys to make untold millions. Like you could have the number one player in the FedEx Cup, the $25 million FedEx Cup champion next year. Like the top player in golf next year could make upwards of $50 million on the course. Like it's absolutely outrageous. But I, I do like the move despite what Lucas Glover says, to have the FedEx Cup playoffs start at 70. If you're a Justin Thomas, if you're an Adam Scott, who's been a premier player for the past two decades, you have to have the inner confidence that, hey, okay, right now I'm not in the signature events. I almost uh, had to do $5 uh, to the jar there. If you're not in the signature events for 2024, well, 
I feel fairly confident that I can play my way in. Maybe I'll get inside the top 30 in the world ranking and be exempt for those events. Maybe I'll win a golf tournament in 2024 and automatically exempt myself for the remainder of the signature events. Perhaps I'll be in the top. I'll, I'll start off well uh, on the West Coast swing, make sure I'm among the top 10 uh, in points or in these little mini swings, be the top five among there. I, I don't think that just because they landed outside the top 70 that all of a sudden they don't think that that was a good move for the PJ Tour. I, I don't think they're that selfish that they can't see the bigger picture that 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 increasing the amount of churn, volatility, and competitiveness on the PJ Tour is a good thing for the product overall. There's still avenues for them to get in, and I think they should have the inner confidence to be able to pull that off. Uh, I don't think you're looking beyond the horizon right now. I will tell you that, yeah, I think 70 is fun. Like, and, and actually, it's going to be 50. That's why I think this week is going to be so enjoyable because the difference between 50 and 51 going next year is going to be massive. I mean, the guy that, that finishes 50th is going to play such a different schedule than the guy who finishes 51st, and it's going to be fractions of points at that point. And there has to be a cutoff. It was always 125, and someone finished 126. I completely understand that. I, I go to a bigger picture, which is what we kind of discussed on Monday during, uh, during Golf Central. The idea being that my rough math based on next year's schedule has about 450 lost playing opportunities on the PGA Tour based on limited fields, smaller fields, lost events, whatever the case may be. That's significant. And so this isn't about getting the best players together more often. I think we can all agree with that. I think we can all look at that model and be like, yes, absolutely. But one of the fundamental tenets of the PGA Tour has always been playing opportunities for its members. And the focus entirely Have we learned now, nothing? Have we learned nothing over the past two years that, the, that the, the model of the PGA Tour is outdated and needs to change? I'm not even saying the model needs to change. Obviously, the, the model has to change. The but ethos. Away, this is the ethos. Away, okay. Taking away 450 playing opportunities in one fell swoop, just doing it, just, I'm not even saying arbitrarily, just cutting it off unapologetically is probably the way I would put it. That's a shock to the system. And I think that's short-sighted. That's what I'm questioning. It's, I'm not expecting the tour to add playing opportunities. I understand fully the environment that the tour is in at the moment. But just to do that wholesale, when I think most players, I think Tiger Woods being the primary example of this, and I don't think any player, at least a top player, has ever lobbied for limited fields more than Tiger Woods. But for him to go to the mat and to fight, to keep his field at something closer to what it had been before, 120 players with a cut, and he didn't get it, but he fought for that. Jack Nicholas fought for that. Those two being primary voices in the game who probably understand the game better than any of us ever will, I think that, to me, demonstrates that maybe they went down a bad path because they were panicky because of what they were facing as far as the irrational threat goes. As someone who is lobbying for fewer PGA Tour cards, fewer players who have status, not more, and as someone who sees cutthroat competition as a more compelling product, uh, I think you and I are just going to have to agree to disagree on this one. I like the direction that the PGA Tour is heading by, by, by cutting it off for some of the guys who have been bottom feeders who are getting by with just a handful of top tens throughout the course of the season. I want to see the very best players on the PGA Tour. It should be the premier tour in the world. And if you're still going to provide opportunities for them to get into these big-time events, these signature events, ding for me, uh, then I, I, think they've, I think they've hit a home run with this model. Obviously, when we do take this podcast a year from now, we may home feel run? differently about, about, about the whole season, about how the whole season went. 
but I like. I you like think the flow they hit a home it. run? I like the I like the flow of it. I like the cut down to from one twenty five to seventy. Um, I, I like the fact that there's still ways for them to for players to to play their way in or to give sponsor exemptions for a tiger or an upstart uh, uh, college player who's trying to make his name on the PGA Tour. I, I like I like all of it. I really do. Uh, I think home run is extreme. I would probably uh, accuse you of, of, of being a prisoner at the moment on that front because I, I like the flow of it as well, and I'm impressed. Like, you have to applaud the tour for being able to do this on the fly and to change. I mean, you're not just changing 36 different dates, but you're having to deal with 36 different foundations. You're having to deal with 36 different sponsors. You're having to deal with 36 different golf courses. All of these are moving parts. And so, yes, I give them total credit. My point to what you're getting at is three years ago, four years ago, no one knew who Scotty Scheffler was outside of a small group of people who follow college golf. Hello. No one knew. Yeah, exactly. No one knew who Colin Moore Cowell was five years ago. I can keep going back. And yes, there is an avenue. It's going to be such a more difficult avenue than it was before. I was talking with one player last night, and it's not as though the cream's not going to continue to rise to the top. Your Scotty Schefflers and your Colin Moore Cowells will still find a way to get onto the PGA Tour, but the consensus among players across the spectrum, this is players who are inside that top 50 and those who are outside the top 50, is the Tour has made it exponentially more difficult. How so? How so? Let's, let's, just, use, let's just use Pearson Cootie as an example, right? Like he was a, he was a star at Texas, uh, all he's done since he got on the Corn Ferry Tour is play great golf. He's among the, the, the top points earners on the Corn Ferry Tour, has his tour card uh, beginning in just a couple of weeks' time. There are multiple ways... Rex, for him to alter his career trajectory now. He can win on the fall, get a two-year exemption. He can win in the calendar year 2024 and get into all of these events. He can post a good finish. Let's say he finishes third, right, at the American Express. All of a sudden, uh, he's playing in a couple of signature events because he's high up on the points list. He can do it in the swings in other ways. That's a whole lot different than, than being left out for Bay Hill or Memorial, which are strictly invitational tournaments and, and hoping and praying that you get a sponsor exemption. There's ways for him to do it, provided he continues to play well. Uh, the example I would use is Chris Kirk, and that's from the last spring. When you looked at what he did in, let's call it what will end up being the full field swing. Let's say he plays well in what, what will end up being Mexico and whatever becomes of the Honda Classic, whatever new sponsor they end up with, which is essentially what he did. And so in that, in that universe, he did qualify to make it to the designated event, which would have been the Arnold Palmer Invitational. And he would have made it in to the Players' Championship based on some other things, which is all great. But now all of a sudden you're making those players play three and four and five and six weeks in a row to piece this together. Because now it starts new after the Players' Championship. Everything re-racks. And you've got to dive back in and, and try to play your way back into it. It's just going to be more difficult. I'm not saying it's impossible at all. The avenues are, are pretty clear and pretty understandable. And I think that they, they've made it, they've given players at least the sliver of hope that, okay, go out and play better, which is the trope that you always fall back on. is still a thing. My concern is the players who are in again, those top 50, number 50 is playing for so many more points and so much more money right out of the gates compared to what number 51 is playing for that. The deck is just stacked against them. And I'm not even saying it's a bad thing, but now you've taken a system that has been in place for decades and you've just upped the bar. So, yeah, your Pearson could play his way in, but it's going to be much, much more difficult is the point I was making. Maybe I was a little too strong by calling it a home run. I would call it a stand-up triple. 
I mean, there's there's some aspects of this that I really really like. If we're if we're really nitpicking the 2024 schedule and the things that I don't like, I don't like that the the fact that the PGA Tour does not have some sort of mandatory requirement for these signature events. Do I think that most, if not all, PGA Tour players are going to show up at these designated events because it has so much more money, it has so many more points, uh, it, it is so important now to maintain among that top 50? Yes, I do think that that will be the case. But Roy McIlroy said today, well, he doesn't particularly like Kawhi, so he's not showing up at the century. If that's the kickoff event for the PGA Tour in this new era in 2024, and you don't have, I would call him your marquee headliner, in that tournament, I think that's a mistake. I don't like the fact that there are some, uh, almost called them designated, signature events leading into major championships. I don't think you should be forcing players to play their way into major form. Some take like a week or two off, and that's how they prep and, and play their best golf in the tournaments that are going to define their legacies. I don't necessarily like the fact that there's two signature events following a major championship. I would have liked to see Colonial get that signature event status. You should be kind of showcasing the best venues on the PGA Tour like they're going to be doing with Pebble next year. I think Colonial is, is one of them. Those are, all, those are all nitpicky things, right? Like we'll have to see how the point allocation is for these signature events. If you're finishing you know, 55th, are you still going to be in really good shape to maintain your top 50 status for next year? Like I think that's something that we're just going to have to wait and see. But overall – uh, no, I if think you finish fifty fifth, you can't finish inside the top fifty. That's that's by design. Like the fifty's locked after East Lake. No, I'm saying fifty fifth in a signature event, right? Like you finish fifty fifth at Memorial. The number of points that you earn are are you still staying ahead of the curve for a player who plays what good but not great in the Palm Beach of events or the Colonials of the world? That point oh, yeah. allocation is, is going to be are. very interesting to see. I know, that's, but that's, that's kind of what we have to wait and see to see if there's sort of an unfair advantage for being in well, the course, signature events. That's a big concern. I mean, of course it's an unfair advantage. There's, there's no other way to explain it. I mean, that's, that's going to be the major pushback. That has been the major pushback. This goes back to the Players' Championship. I, I wrote about this based on the idea that I consider that the winner of a designated event game. All right, bing, that's me. Uh, the winner of a signature event uh, gets 50 less points than winning a major championship. That's 750 to 700, right? So, all right, you're already starting to get into the neighborhood. Where it gets weird is the next nine players, so the top 10 in the signature events, earn the exact same points as you do in a major championship, which is considerably more than what you would earn in a quote-unquote full field. Event. So, of course, I mean, it's not even a debate. It's going to be unfair. The deck is stacked, as I've sit here, sat here and tried to explain. If you're in the designated events, man, if you're in the signature events, it's only going to get it, – it, it's almost like self-fulfilling at that point. Anyone who played well this year is going to discover that you picked the perfect year to finish inside the top 50. I have no problem with players who finish well in a signature event being rewarded – you, you know, and, and maintaining that status. I have a potential issue if you're bottom feeding, finishing 40th, 50th, and still outperforming in the FedEx Cup race players who are finishing, I don't know, 10th or 15th in full field events. That's the kind of machinations that I want to see play out over 2024 that, that, you know, the tour has assured us that they've run thousands of simulations, that this is, this is the best that they, that this is the best they can get to get the proper number of churn 
among that top 50. But until we actually see it in action, uh, I think everyone will, will remain at least a little bit skeptical. All right, Rex, I did print out, this is not going to be a visual medium, unfortunately. I did print out a detailed itinerary that I wanted you to follow Tuesday to Sunday while you're in Memphis, one of the great food cities in the country. It is Wednesday. You're already 0 for 1 with my suggestions. Where did you eat on Tuesday night, and how close do you think you'll be able to follow my itinerary to a T? Uh, not close. Uh, well, not 100% close, I guess, would be the fair way of saying it. And I, I actually did. I had rendezvous on the range yesterday here at TPC Southwind. It was delicious. That, so was, that was an honorable mention, however. That was an honorable mention. Uh, uh, still on the list. Uh, last night, I ate with a caddy and a player, a friend of mine, and they wanted to go to a place called the One and Only Barbecue, which was very, very good. That was actually in Memphis, not far from my hotel. So I'm not going to uh, say that I made a bad choice there. Tonight will be an earlier an earlier night. And so I, I'll get back on schedule tonight. Your, your schedule, your, your itinerary is so aggressive, man. You travel like my wife. Like, you don't go on vacation. You're, like, you're on a mission to make sure you touch all the bases. And I, I kind of want to sit back and smell the roses. That's just not how I operate. That's not how I run my I life. Know. I like having a schedule. I like having a detailed itinerary. Uh, you did miss Germantown Commissary on Tuesday, which was my number one list. Like, folks, I, I, had, this, I had this broken down by quality of restaurant, what you need to order, uh, the potential that, that could be sold out by the time that Rex can actually get to it. Uh, I even looked at of hours of operation making sure that on the weekend spots they're open until 9 or 10, knowing that our writing and TV schedule is going to take us a little bit deeper into the night. I believe on Wednesday, which is when we're recording this podcast, I had you booked for Cozy Corner, um, which I did last time when I was in Memphis in 2021. Uh, Barbecue, Cornish hen, rib tips, brisket, barbecue spaghetti, all the like. The one I'm most looking forward to, though, uh, you eventually venturing out and trying is the barbecue shop routinely rated among not just the best in Memphis, but the best in the entire country. It has been featured on numerous lists as one of the best things people who would know have ever eaten. Uh, I suggest the half and half ribs, half wet, half dry with a side of barbecue spaghetti folks. It should be absolutely delicious. Uncle Lou's fried chicken, uh, Gus's fried chicken, uh, what else did I put on there? And obviously you need to go to Germantown Commissary, which you missed on Tuesday. We'll, we'll, we'll be back next week with a full report of how Rex did, uh, which I'm sure uh, he'll, he'll, he'll be batting at least seven, 750. I think that's it. It's being, a, you know, and you're about to talk your way out of a rendezvous t-shirt that I got for you on the rain. So just tread carefully here. It was free. It was a free shirt. I had to go back to get that. And my hands were dirty, obviously, because of barbecue. Because of the barbecue. It's supposed uh, to be a dry rib. Uh, no, no, they had a good sauce. They had, you know what they had that I, I thought was delicious? And uh, I was eating with Jason Sobel, a friend of ours, and he hated it. But they had like a mustard-based coleslaw, which I'd never really had before. It was delicious. Uh, I love coleslaw of all bases. Uh, so I'm not sure what Sobel's deal is. Uh, he certainly would not like barbecue spaghetti uh, if this one offended his palate. I'm not sure you've ever had barbecue spaghetti, but uh, you're in for quite a treat if, if not. And I had a uh, barbecue bologna sandwich last night, which was also to die for. That, oh, that was, that was your main entree? No, no, I got ribs. I, I got that as a uh, appetizer. <laughs> which I'm not eating very well, I guess, would be the, 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 the 30,000 foot notion of uh, it's going to be a bad eating week this week. 
Uh, I gained eight pounds uh, two years ago when I visited Memphis. Uh, I kind of feel like it, we, we, we actually lost weight uh, while covering the Open Championship, not just because of the, the mile-and-a-half walk uh, to the golf course, uh, but the fact that we starve ourselves because the food there uh, is so poor. So I feel, like we're, I feel like you're just packing on weight like ahead of the season. Like you know you're going to sweat it out in two days. You know it's going you know to be tough uh, in Atlanta. Uh, with the heat and humidity that you're going to get there. Obviously, once these storms blow through, it's going to be it's going to be hot as hell in Memphis as well. So I feel like you need to just pack on pack on the pounds for the summer heat. That's clearly going to descend on you. Uh, yes, that's what I intend to do. I'm going in hibernation after the tour championship, so I need to get fat. I like where we're going with this. <laughs> Getting fat right before football season, uh, where right. you'll clearly you'll clearly not be eating as well. All right, folks, that's going to do it for this edition of the Golf Channel podcast with Rex and Lab. Make sure you go to GolfChannel.com for all of Rex's blogs, columns, analysis, TV hits, and the like. This podcast will be posted shortly. Apologies, again, to our dedicated YouTube viewers that this was uh, audio only. We'll be back next week. I'll be at the BMW Championship, hopefully uh, coming back from the Cubs game. And then Rex and I will both be at the Tour Championship, the final leg of the FedEx Cup playoffs. That will surely be captivating. All right, we'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening. 